You're listening to the Partisan Comms Podcast. There is a signal broadcasting every second of every day through our television sets. Welcome to Episode 3. I'm Terrence. Technology and social media play an important role in the lives of most people because it enables them to communicate, share, and access information. Both are also valuable tools to help people to learn, work, create, and participate in various fields and activities. Since technology and social media are so intertwined in the lives of many around the world, today we explore the controversial topic of censorship and what happens when you find yourself on the receiving end of it. For some context, I'll cover a brief history of censorship through the ages and then talk about some people who defied their government's attempts to suppress information during the 2011 Arab Spring and the 1989 Tiananmen Square Massacre. With the proliferation of social media platforms, we often hear about either the banning or shadow banning of certain topics, individuals, or groups. Censorship can take many forms, but what is it? In general, it's the act of restricting or prohibiting certain types of speech or content. This can be done by various entities, such as governments, regulators, broadcasters, or other operators. The reasons for censorship can vary, but they usually revolve around legal, moral, political, or security issues. Unfortunately, you don't have to look very far to find some in our society who advocate for the censorship of other opinions that don't fit certain worldviews. However, banning ideas rarely makes a society better. After all, how can a society flourish if ideas aren't allowed in the public square to face scrutiny? Censorship is not a new phenomenon. In fact, it's a topic society has debated throughout history. The advancements in technology have also added new layers of complexity to the rules of communication. Some of those advancements have redefined what a public square is and whom may enter. But what about the city of the day after tomorrow? say, the year 2000. I think it will be completely different. In fact, it may not even exist at all. Oh, I'm not thinking of the atom bomb and the next Stone Age. I'm thinking of the incredible breakthrough which has been made possible by developments in communications, particularly the transistor and, above all, the communications satellite. Imagine, if you will, sitting down to your morning coffee, turning on your home computer to read the day's newspaper. Millions of Americans own a personal computer. If you're one of them, you can now glimpse the future with nothing more than a modem, a phone line, and a few dollars a month. I wonder though, what sort of a life would it be like in social terms? I mean, if our whole life is built around the computer, do we become a computer-dependent society and a computer-independent individuals? In some ways, but they will also enrich our society. YouTube, Facebook, and Apple all announcing they're removing his content from their platforms. Well, we hear a lot about censorship of the writer on TV. We hear a good deal about it in your own case especially. Well, depending, of course, on the thematic treatment you're using, if you have the temerity to try to dramatize a theme that involves any particular social controversy currently extant, then you're in deep trouble. Just what is this main artery of the information superhighway? 
this is an experiment. We're trying to figure out what it's going to mean to us as editors and reporters and what it means to the home user. These things will make possible a world in which we can be in instant contact with each other, wherever we may be, where we can contact our friends anywhere on Earth, even if we don't know their actual physical location. Well, obviously, it is this wild lunatic fringe of letter writers that, that greatly affect what the sponsor has in mind. And so the question is, what is the right moment for the platform to intervene? When that time comes, the whole world will have shrunk to a point. And the traditional role of the city as a meeting place for man would have ceased to make any sense. Voter misinformation. That's the line Facebook, Twitter, and others seem to have drawn. Pre-censorship. How does that work? Uh, Pre-censorship is a practice, I think, of most television writers. I can't speak for all of them. This is the prior knowledge of the writer of those areas which are difficult to try to get through. And so a writer will shy away from writing those things which he knows he's going to have trouble with on a sponsorial or an agency level. We practice it all the time. We just do not write those themes which, you know are going, which we know are going to get into trouble. Who's the culprit? Is it the network? The sponsor? It sure is not the FCC. No, it's certainly not the FCC, ideally speaking, of course. It's a combination of culprits in this case, Mike. It's partly network. It's principally agency and sponsor. In many ways, I think it's the audience themselves. Big tech companies, I can tell you, they usually do not act alone. What you were just listening to were some clips I came across while researching this topic. I thought they were relevant to the discussion because they're illustrative of people's opinions on how they believe technology would advance over the coming decades and the impact that evolution would have on communications and censorship. As mentioned earlier, censorship is not a new phenomenon. In antiquity, censorship efforts were often based on religious, moral, or political grounds. For example, in ancient Rome, the office of censor was established in 443 BCE, and the purpose was to conduct the census. However, their powers extended beyond the census. These officials could also censor ban books, plays, or speeches that they deem subversive or immoral as a means to regulate the morals of the citizens. In 213 BCE, the government in ancient China prohibited the circulation of both foreign and domestic books that criticized the emperor or his policies. They also ordered the burning of many books and the execution of scholars who possessed them. In the Middle Ages, as well as in the Renaissance, censorship was mainly influenced by the Catholic Church and its doctrine. For example, in 1229 AD, the Council of Toulouse forbade the possession of the Bible by lay people and ordered the confiscation and burning of any unauthorized copies. In 1546 AD, the Church established the Index Laborium Prohibitorium, and that was a list of books that were banned or restricted. That list included works by authors such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, Galileo Galilei, and Voltaire. In the modern era, censorship has been shaped by the rise of nationalism, populism, democracy, and mass media. However, in the 17th and 18th centuries, many European states have engaged in censorship of 
publications or punish the expression of dissenting or revolutionary ideas. Ideas outlined in documents like the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, as well as the American Declaration of Independence. In the 20th and 21st centuries, many totalitarian regimes, such as Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, and the current iteration of the Chinese Communist Party, have used censorship to control and manipulate the information and culture of their populations, such as by banning or altering books, newspapers, radio, television, and film. Censorship in the contemporary world is still a controversial and complex issue because it involves various factors such as freedom of speech, human rights, national security, public order, and cultural diversity. Some countries, such as the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, have laws that protect the freedom of expression in the press, but also impose some limits on regulations on certain forms of speech, which include obscenity, defamation, or incitement to violence. Other countries, such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, and North Korea, have laws that severely restrict or prohibit the expression of any opinions or information that contradict or challenge the official ideology, religion, or government. Social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, YouTube and Instagram have become an integral part in our lives as they allow us to communicate, share, and access information and entertainment. However, they also face the challenge of moderating the content that is posted by their users, as some of it may be harmful, illegal, or offensive to others. However, Regulating online content brings up some difficult questions, such as how do these platforms decide what to allow or to remove? What are the criteria and processes they use? What are the impacts and implications of their decisions? And what are the rights and responsibilities of the users, the platforms, and the governments in this context? Unfortunately, the answers these platforms give for the reasons why they choose to remove certain content isn't always clear and doesn't always seem to follow a consistent policy. Censorship of social media has become more prominent and complex in recent years, and the platforms have grown in size, influence, and diversity. The platforms have also faced increased pressure and scrutiny from various stakeholders, such as governments, civil society, advertisers, and the public, to address the problems and risks associated with online content, including misinformation, terrorism, child abuse, and copyright infringement. Platforms have responded by developing and implementing various policies and tools to moderate online content. Many of these policies and tools are in the form of community standards, terms of service, algorithms, artificial intelligence, human reviewers, as well as user reports. Unfortunately, these policies and tools are often vague, inconsistent, or biased, and may not always align with the principles and standards of international human rights laws, such as freedom of expression, privacy, and non-discrimination. Moreover, platforms have also faced criticism and accusations of political bias and interference, especially during elections or social movements. Some critics claim that many platforms favor or suppress certain views or groups, while others claim that they fail to prevent or remove harmful or illegal content. Some governments have also tried to regulate or restrict platforms either to protect and 
in some cases undermine human rights and democracy. The issue of social media censorship is a complex one because of the types of questions it raises when analyzing the criteria a given platform uses for its moderation practices, such as who decides what is acceptable or unacceptable online content, what is the process for making such decisions, how transparent and accountable are the platforms and the governments in their content moderation practices, how can users appeal or challenge such decisions, and how can one express their opinions and participate in public debate while abiding by often vague community standards. Every form of communication has, at one time or another, been the target of censorship. Censorship over the airwaves is another complex and contentious topic that has no simple or definitive answer. As with the censorship efforts of the past, it involves similar factors such as legal, moral, political, or national security issues that may differ from country to country and from situation to situation. It also involves various perspectives such as those of governments, regulators, broadcasters, and even listeners that may conflict or coincide with each other. Radio censorship has been around since the early days of radio communication when governments and militaries tried to control the airwaves for strategic or propaganda purposes. During World Wars I and II, many countries banned or restricted amateur radio operation to prevent espionage or interference with official communications. There have been some cases of radio operators being censored by the government, especially during times of war or emergency. For example, during World War II, the U.S. government suspended all amateur radio operations. Radio censorship still exists today, although it may take many forms and degrees depending on the country and the situation. One example of lesser blatant censorship is through regulation. Most countries require amateur radio operators to obtain a license and to follow certain rules and regulations to operate legally on the amateur radio bands. These rules and regulations may include things like technical standards, frequency allocations, operating practices, as well as content restrictions. However, in some countries, such as China, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria, amateur radio licenses are either very difficult to obtain or not available at all. Some governments or organizations may deliberately interfere with or block radio signals to prevent or disrupt communications as a means of censoring their citizens from unwanted content. This can be done by using powerful transmitters or other devices that create interference on the same or adjacent frequencies as the amateur radio transmission. Jamming and interference can affect both local and international communication, especially on the shortwave bands that are used for long-distance communication. Of course, in times of war, social and political strife, there have been radio operators who have come up with some creative ways to counter censorship. One method is through encryption or coding messages. However, depending on the encryption method used, coding a message can make communication more difficult and time-consuming as they require additional equipment, software, or procedures. Encrypting messages can also attract unwanted attention from authorities or adversaries who may suspect illegal or subversive activity. 
Other operators may use evasion or avoidance techniques to avoid detection or interference from authorities or adversaries. Evasion is the process of changing frequencies, modes, call signs, locations, or times of operation to evade monitoring or jamming. Avoidance is the process of steering clear of certain topics, words, or phrases that might trigger censorship or suspicion. Evasion and avoidance can make communication more discreet and reliable, but it has some drawbacks. Evasion and avoidance can make communication more inconvenient and unpredictable because it requires constant adaptation and coordination, and it might reduce the quality of the communication as well. Some operators may also use activism or advocacy techniques to challenge or oppose censorship, and that's the process of using radio as a tool to communicate with authorities, media, organizations, uh, or other stakeholders to influence policies, decisions, or actions that might affect society at large. Activism and advocacy can make communication more meaningful and impactful, but it can make communication riskier and more controversial because it might provoke backlash or retaliation from authorities or adversaries. Additionally, it might also violate the rules and regulations governing radio in some countries or regions. During wartime, radio operators may find themselves facing restrictions from their own governments or face specific prohibitions on radio operation, and that can be done for various reasons such as preventing espionage, interference, propaganda, or dissent. World War I was the first major war that involved radio communication, both for military and civilian purposes. However, it also saw the first widespread censorship of amateur radio by governments and militaries. In 1914, when war broke out in Europe, most countries suspended or revoked amateur radio licenses and ordered all amateur radio stations to shut down or be taken over by the authorities. Some countries also confiscated or destroyed amateur radio equipment and arrested or fined amateur radio operators who violated these orders. In 1917, when the United States entered the war, the U.S. Congress ordered all amateur radio operators to cease operations. This prohibition was not lifted until the end of the war. The main reason for radio censorship during World War I was to prevent espionage or interference with official military communications. However, some historians have argued that it was a way to control public opinion and information about the war. The effect of radio censorship during World War I was that it virtually silenced the amateur radio community and deprived it of its role as a pioneer and innovator of radio technology. As mentioned earlier, World War II also involved censorship of amateur radio by governments and militaries. In 1939, when war broke out in Europe, most countries again suspended or revoked amateur radio licenses and ordered all amateur radio stations to shut down. Some countries also confiscated or destroyed amateur radio equipment and fined operators who violated the prohibition. In 1941, when the United States entered the war following the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt set up the Office of Censorship to regulate all forms of communication. The Office of Censorship issued a code of wartime practices for the American press 
that imposed strict rules and restrictions on what could be broadcast. For example, it established a central clearinghouse of information and set guidelines for broadcasters about which types of information should not be published or broadcast without authorization by a qualified government source. The primary motivation for radio censorship during World War II was to protect national security and morale from enemy propaganda or sabotage. However, the effect of this type of censorship during World War II was that it again silenced the radio community as well as the American press in some regards. However, some amateur radio operators were allowed to continue their activities under certain conditions and for certain purposes. For example, some were actually recruited by the military or intelligence agencies to serve as operators, instructors, technicians, or code breakers. Others were authorized by the government to operate as emergency communications uh, personnel for civil defense, or others were actually just permitted by the government to operate as clandestine agents or resistance fighters behind enemy lines. These exceptions allowed some operators to contribute to the war effort and demonstrate their skills and value. After World War II ended in 1945, most countries lifted their restrictions or bans on radio communication. However, radio censorship did not completely disappear. In fact, some countries continued or imposed new forms of censorship on radio for various reasons, which some of those included political, ideological, or religious issues. In some parts of the world, radio censorship persisted after World War II, so certain regimes could maintain political control and stability. In the Soviet Union and its satellite states, radio was tightly controlled and monitored by the communist regime. Operators had to obtain a license and follow strict rules and regulations to operate legally, and were encouraged to avoid communicating sensitive or controversial topics. In China, amateur radio was restricted during several periods. One such period was the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976, as well as the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989. In Cuba, amateur radio was restricted during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, as well as the special period that lasted from 1991 to 2000. As was the situation in China, Cuban radio operators had to follow similar guidelines on how they could operate as well as being discouraged from discussing sensitive or controversial topics. In Iran, amateur radio was restricted by the Islamic regime during the Iranian Revolution from 1978 to 1979 and during the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988. A topic that has been largely forgotten or censored by some media outlets are people who defied their government by attempting to relay information to the outside world during intentional information blackouts. During the Arab Spring uprisings in 2011, some operators in Egypt and Libya used their equipment to communicate and coordinate with protesters, and activists when the internet and phone services were shut down by the government. There's breaking news from Egypt this morning. New clashes erupted between anti-government protesters and riot police in Cairo. 
The day began quietly. This is the Sunday of the Muslim world. By early morning, security forces were setting up across the city, and internet and cell phone communication had largely been shut down. Similar censorship efforts occurred when the Chinese government imposed restrictions on the media during the Tiananmen Square protests. After martial law was declared, foreign media was no longer permitted to visit Tiananmen Square. Photography of the square was not permitted, and transporting film from Beijing became a difficulty. The Tiananmen Square protests, also known as the June 4th incident, were a series of student-led demonstrations that took place in Beijing, China from April 15th to June 4th, 1989. The protests were sparked by the death of former Communist Party leader Hu Yobang, who was seen as a reformist and a champion of democracy. The protesters demanded political and economic reforms, freedom of speech and press, and an end to corruption and nepotism. The protest attracted millions of supporters from different walks of life and spread to other cities across China. The biggest student demonstration this week in China was tonight. Tens of thousands of students jammed Tiananmen Square in Beijing demanding more freedom, just hours before an official ceremony to honor Hu Yaobang. The noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of Peking. It was unremitting. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. Indeed, it was hard at times to grasp that this army was launching into an unarmed civilian population as if charging into battle. From Tiananmen Square, the sound of gunfire sounded like a battle, but it was one-sided. The Chinese government initially attempted to negotiate with the protesters, but soon resorted to repression and violence. On the morning of May 20th, the government declared martial law and sent troops and tanks to clear the square by force. This resulted in hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths and injuries and shocked the world with its brutality. While the government made efforts to control information about the events, there is a famous shortwave broadcast that was made on June 3rd, 1989. This is Radio Beijing. Remember June the 3rd, 1989, the most tragic event happened in the Chinese capital, Beijing. Thousands of people, most of them innocent civilians, were killed by fully armed soldiers when they forced their way into the city. Among the killed are our colleagues at Radio Beijing. The soldiers were riding on armored vehicles and used machine guns against thousands of local residents and students who tried to block their way. When the army convoys made the breakthrough, soldiers continued to spray their bullets indiscriminately at crowds in the street. Eyewitnesses say some armored vehicles even crushed foot soldiers who hesitated in front of the resisting civilians. Radio Beijing English Department deeply mourns those died in a tragic incident and appeals to all its listeners to join our protest for the gross violation of human rights and the most barbarous suppression of the people. 
Because of the abnormal situation here in Beijing, there is no other news we could bring you. We sincerely ask for your understanding, and thank you for joining us at this most tragic moment. It's believed by some that the announcer was detained by authorities for several years, although I'm not sure if that was speculation or what the true story of the announcer's fate was. The Chinese government has tried to erase and rewrite the history of the protests and to silence and punish anyone who dares to remember or speak about them. Those who defied their government have been largely ignored or censored by the mainstream media, and attempts have been made throughout the years to memory hold their names and deeds. However, there are still some out there who have tried to preserve and honor the memory and the legacy of those who resisted. Well, that's all I have for this episode, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, or write a review. You can find other content at partisancommsgroup.com or on YouTube by searching for at Partisan Comms Group. Thanks for listening. There is a signal broadcasting every second of every day through our television sets. Mark my words, AI is far more dangerous than nukes. Science and technology are propelling us forward at accelerating rates. Engines throttling up, three engines now at 104%.